welcome to this BGSM podcast. I'm Stefan Griffin, a medical student at the University of Birmingham and a member of the BGSM editorial team. I'm absolutely honoured today to be joined by Professor Steve Peters, who although needs no introduction, I'll provide shortly. But first of all, welcome to the podcast, Professor Peters. Thank you. So for anyone not up to date, Professor Peters is the CEO of Chimp Management Limited and author of the Chimp Paradox book, one of the best-selling self-development books of recent years. A trained psychiatrist within the NHS and Dean of Sheffield Medical School, it is through sporting circles you're most likely to have heard his name, as he's worked with the likes of Team Sky Cycling, Liverpool Football Club and the FA amongst others. He's even been credited as the best appointment ever made by Sir Dave Brailsford himself, so we're absolutely delighted to be picking his brains. So going into the first question, for those not familiar with the chimp model, Professor Peters, would you mind explaining the basic theory behind it, please? Okay. Um, first of all, when I look at the work I was doing and teaching medical students psychiatry and obviously the neuroscience basis, it is quite complex and you can do that in a very academic way, but it's not actually then very practical, so it may be academically stimulating. Uh, when it came to clinical work and I worked with patients, what I found was if you remove illness from the picture, a lot of people came through the door who I wouldn't technically say were ill, but they were in a pretty bad place and their mind was playing up with them and they didn't understand the processes of what were going through their head. So what I did is I looked at the neuroscience and I looked at observational things with patients, things we all experience. So I said to myself, how can I present this in a way which is entertaining but very serious? And if you look at the brain, and I'm just cutting to the chase, I wanted to invent a model that people wouldn't have to think a lot about. It would be self-evident. If you see the brain as being one system which is conscious awareness, however you want to define that, it's when we know what we're doing and we're in agreement with it, or we maybe disagreeing with it, but we're fully aware of what's happening, then you have an interpretation centre in the brain which I've called a human. And this is where we say things like, I would like to run my life, eat sensibly, be calm and collected, keep perspective and so on. But in reality, that's not what we experience. And from the neuroscience point of view, it's not what we see in the brain. That the brain actually runs a lot of the systems without our say-so and often without our knowledge. So many people would call that the unconscious aspects. So then we find that we say on one part of our brain, I want to be calm and collected and civil to people, and then in reality in the situation we lose it a little bit and we say things we regret or we become highly emotional. And if you scan the brain using things like functional MRI scanners, you see a different system is actually taking over. And this system appears to have a mind of its own with its own agenda. So for example, in, in a discussion group, uh, the human part of the brain would want to listen to people, would want to reason with them, come to common ground and solutions. Whereas what I then said was, if you look at the other part of the brain, it acts more like a chimpanzee. So I called it the chimp brain, which actually wants to dominate, uh, prove itself, it's egotistic. It's not really interested necessarily in solutions, but more in demonstrating its power and in winning situations. And then finally, I had a third system, which was when we're just going through life and routinely um, going through all the motions of behaviours and thinking without any analytical input of any kind. And this I call the computer system, so a bit like driving to work where you're not consciously aware of changing gears or stopping at traffic lights and you're maybe having a conversation with someone and, and this computer brain is running the system for you. So that's where the chimp model came from. It's based on neuroscience and observational things. Uh, and then saying, how can my patients now start to understand what's happening in their mind when they say one thing and yet do another? 
Okay, uh, and we know you best really for from your work in sport. How do you, how is this model? How have you sort of elaborated that into your work with uh, with athletes? If you look at what I've explained there, it's trying to say that we have a principle operating here that we say one thing and often experience or do another. So for example, if you take a typical Olympic elite athlete who will say, I really want to go to the Olympics, I want to do well, and then you say to them, how do you want to appear? Let's say they get to the final. Uh, and they'll say to me, I want to be able to focus on what I'm doing. I don't want any fear involved. I want to be completely driven. I want to be committed to what I'm doing. The reality is they often say when it comes to the big stage, that's not what happens. So the hijack, as I would call it, from the chimp brain, typically will put the athletes into a position where they, they have faulty judgment making. It's emotional. They might go off too quickly in a race or hold back. And after the race is over, they'll say, why did I get anxious? Why didn't I keep perspective? Why did I make unsound judgment calls after training for four years for an event? Why did I then apparently sabotage it? And I'm trying to say that if we start to understand what your chimp brain is like, and everyone is unique with this, then we can start to manage that part of our brain to advantage. Essentially, the people who you see and the athletes you work with, it's really the it's a chimp overactivity um, that you're coming across. It depends. I mean, when I wrote The Chimp Paradox, the, the reason I gave it that title was uh, it is a paradox. The chimp isn't a bad influence in our life. It's an, an influence, um, and it's based around emotion, but not, it's not an emotional machine. It's just based around emotion. It bases its rational thinking or, or often irrational thinking on emotions and intuition. And that doesn't have to be wrong. So I would say when I work with an athlete, it's up to them what they want to do. All I can say is if we work with the computer brain, the evidence base is that you're far more process-driven and accurate during sport. If we work with a human brain, these circuits are quite slow and very analytical. So a typical experience might be an athlete saying, I felt really calm and collected, but actually I couldn't operate well. I wasn't quick enough. Um, and the, sec the third brain, the chimp brain, is typically likely to be much more emotionally driven and, and make unsound emotional judgments. But not always. It depends on the sport. It depends on the person. And, and we're all unique characters. And these three parts of the brain are unique to that person. So realistic, what I do with an athlete is ask them what they're trying to achieve, try and get them to understand again insights into their own mind, and we do that as a team. I don't come in with a formula. I sit the same side of the table with the athlete, and together we look at what's happening in their mind and what it is they want and what they believe isn't helpful. I, I usually involve their coach as well. I like the coach to be in the room because I'm no expert in sport. They will tell me the optimum strategy to use or optimum way of working in a particular sport. And then together, I then work alongside the physical coach to do what is effectively mental coaching and mentoring to help someone to gain a skill by understanding their mind, getting insights into the mind, applying it, seeing if it works. Then they'll come back, just like any coach would in physical sport, and saying, this works more. They'll say, Steve, that doesn't work because... And then my job is to give them further insights and understanding and recognise what's happening so they get the, the best possible outcome. In terms of um, coming across the athletes in the first place, do you find it works better if the athletes come to you themselves or if, if, if a coach is recommending they see you in the first place? Does that make a difference? I don't think it does in the sense that, obviously, the most important factor is that the athlete uh, has got an ability to see what I'm doing and saying, I actually agree and want to do this. 
clearly, if somebody says to me, I don't agree with what you're doing and I don't want to do this, then I can't really do anything. No different to a physical coach. If, if I take you down to the track and say we're going to train for 100 metres and what I'd like you to do is gain some speed in your legs, so we'll do maybe six 100 metres at top speed and have a bit of a break between, and you said, I don't want to do that, then you're tying the coach's hands. And it's a bit the same with the mind. You're training a machine. And if an athlete then disengages or says, I don't agree, then I'll need to negotiate with them. But I'm saying that the optimum way of operating the mind looks likely to be this. But again, I can't make an athlete do it. So possibly the criteria and the walk in the door is, whether it's sport or whether it's just general public getting personal professional life in order, is to say, can you see deficits that you believe can be turned around by operating with your mind? If the answer is yes, then we've got a good starting point. If someone gets referred in by a coach or somebody else, they may come in a bit resistant. Uh, and my job is not to challenge them, but to help them to see what I'm doing is for them to challenge themselves uh, and to decide whether they want to operate in a certain way, whether they want to define what it is they want and then get the skill to do it. And that, from my perspective, is operating with one of these three systems and getting all three systems in an optimal state so you have a good choice. You mentioned the role of the computer, um, and in your book you mentioned uh, the role that gremlins and goblins um, play in this. For listeners who aren't uh, familiar with, with the terms, I, I definitely recommend you go read the book. Um, but how much of what you do with the athletes um, relates to removing unhelpful traits that might have been ingrained in them for a long time, but it might be inhibiting their performance? I mean, it's a good point you make. One of the things that concerned me when I introduced the model was to keep it simple, and I, I didn't want too many terminologies, otherwise it just becomes a little bit of a cult, uh, and that's not really helpful. Um, and the only reason I brought in the idea within the computer, there are only six elements in the model, uh, and the gremlins and goblins are basically faulty beliefs or behaviours or destructive, unhelpful behaviours or beliefs we, we, we actually possess or operate with without probably recognising them. So on average, my experience has been anecdotally that most people have around six gremlins that they are not aware of. And these are beliefs or behaviours to do with themselves and their own self-perception or other people around them or the world in which they live. And if you can elicit them and remove them and replace them with constructive beliefs and based on the truth and facts, uh, then they can operate in a different way because they'll start perceiving the world and themselves and others in a different way. So this is based around ideas of cognitive and behavioural techniques because this is what I would be teaching and I just wanted to engulf that in with the chimp which is outside of that. Um, so the gremlins basically were the faulty beliefs and behaviours, but in clinical practice, when I'm teaching therapists, doctors and so on, uh, working with the mind, one of the flaws we can do as therapists is trying to help someone to change something that actually isn't changeable. So we know that in medical terms, things such as attachment bonding um, can be disrupted during the early childhood years, and when that happens, it's very hard to actually turn the brain circuits back. It's not impossible, but often it's very difficult. And that's why I introduced the goblin to say, look, sometimes we do have to live with emotional scars, but that doesn't mean we can't manage them or contain them. So that was the only distinction between the two. But this is based around your beliefs and behavior systems, which are often unconscious and need to be brought through to conscious level. 
Okay, and for any young clinicians or young coaches who might be listening, do you find anything, if you're seeing an athlete who might be in their mid to late 20s, um, but have a, a, a certain psychological trait that you think might be holding them back, is there anything these coaches or clinicians can do when the athlete's um, developing? Are there, any, are there any pitfalls that they can avoid? I think, again, it's a good point you make is that the ideal is to learn when you're young in a sport. We know that the sort of development model is that the coach will instruct a youngster because they don't know anything. And then there's a transition period where the youngster will be getting more mature in the sport and start to negotiate because they're starting to understand what it takes to be a winner or to, to get better performance. And finally, that transition should reverse where it's the athlete who drives forward and the coach is there as a sounding board and mentor, an observer to try and guide them if there is uh, something happening which is um, causing the techniques to falter. So there's a change in the relationship as people mature with their coaches. And it's the same from my perspective with the mind. At the age at which we start understanding our own minds and learning to manage ourselves and our emotions and thinking and so on, the earlier we start, the better. If somebody comes in late in the day, then it's like starting in a new sport where you really don't have an awareness of what you need to be doing in order to get optimum performance. So my job, along with the, the mentors I've got in my little team, are to help people gain that insight and to discover how their mind operates. And they are unique, so I can't give you tips of the trade or techniques because it's about discovering your particular unique mind and the world in which you live which is unique and the past experience you've got which is unique. So it's about discovering and getting you some things that work for you and insights that give you that skill and ability to manage yourself. In some sports we might get athletes who are struggling for confidence where some um, would probably say their performance is maybe affected by overaggression. How would your approach in them differ originally? I would, the starting point is always the same, is to get the athlete to relax and the coach hopefully to, to say, right, we need them in a good place to be able to open up and, and be very analytical and very objective rather than subject about their performance and what they're doing. So what you do is you look across to see are there any areas we can improve on or other areas that are detrimental. So if an athlete, and I'm being deliberately provocative here with it, it says to me, I believe that complete uncontrolled aggression is the answer in my particular sport. Um, I'm not going to argue that. What I would do is look scientifically and look at the objective evidence and we'd look at them in action and say, are there alternatives? Let's look at other athletes. Let's see what the best practice happens to be. It could end up they stick with what they're saying. What I can do is try and give them the insight to look at consequence and possible alternatives. So I have worked with athletes who have a firm belief that in order for me to perform well, I need to be outrageously aggressive. Um, I've had a number of athletes who then say, I want, I want to question that because there may be a better way. And then we trial out an alternative belief system uh, and back that up, obviously, with other facts and evidence. And then we monitor objectively their performance in their sport. And my well, anecdotal evidence has been that in most cases they improve. Their performance will improve because they aren't themselves in control of this. I'm not telling them. I'm just trying to discover with them and give them some guidance on what to do. It's a bit, when you say this, it's a bit like you come to the gym and you say to me, let's say I'm a gym instructor, uh, and there's all this machinery there, and you say, right, I'd really like to get fit. Uh, I wouldn't say just off you go and do anything. I'd probably ask you, well, what is it you're trying to do in the gym? And if you said, well, I want to be an elite shot putter, then we're not going to work a lot on your legs because that's it. The arms are basically levers, so we need some strength work there. And there'll be lots of other things which 
performance analysts say the experts would come in with. If, however, you said, I want to be a 400-meter hurdler, we're going to do very different work because this event obviously means you have to have some endurance. So when you go into the gym, we now have to adapt what you're going to do. So you have to first decide your, your gym is equivalent. It's like all these machines that you can build up with. But you have to decide what it is you want as your final outcome. Then the gym instructor, which is the mind expert, um, will then come in and say, these are the ideal ways of operating, typically. Let's go down that route rather than you just picking up weights and randomly trying to get fit for a specific event. So it's the same with the mind. We do exactly the same. We, we work on specific areas to make the mind for example, as you say, not be so aggressive or maybe more aggressive stance uh, or maybe it wants to focus better or retain concentration. The athlete will tell me and the coach where the potential gains could be. And someone who might be affected by over-aggression you know, over when the chimp takes over, how, how hard is it to try and get someone, especially in sport where things happen in a split second, how hard is it, you know, even despite all the training, is it for them to get, um, or for them to implement the model in, in that split second? Okay, if you take this as being, at face value, what I'm saying, you have three systems, and the human system is too slow to do anything, so it's probably, probably the worst place to be in sport, but there are certain sports it may be useful. Um, the chimp system is a bit unpredictable, but it is, it's got masses of drives, it's your motivational centres, uh, whereas the human works more with commitment. Uh, so there's nothing negative about it, but it just means it's a little bit of a loose cannon if you take it into the sporting arena, and it depends on your particular chimp. What it can't do is do a fast analysis based on fact and truth. It works with intuition and feeling, which may be correct in a sport. Uh, and then finally, you've got a computer system, which is fairly rigid, and it will just follow patterns once it gets a trigger point that it recognises. So it's a pattern recognition machine, really. And the human and chip program that. So if you then say, right, you've got these three systems, which one is the best one to use? You've got to then learn how to flip from one system to another. So I've had a number of athletes who can split second move from chip to computer. Once you've got the skill of learning how to do it and refocus your mind, you're literally talking split seconds. But that is a skill to do. And the first thing you've got to do is understand the three parts of the brain and then how to flick across into one that you know is going to operate. And again, we make an assumption the computer is very well programmed. And this is where I'd work very closely with the coach, and we would program the computer with its trigger points and behaviours that we believe will get optimum performance. Moving slightly on from the um, chimp modeler, do you, do you see a lot of mental health issues in the, in the athletes that you work with? Yes, I do. Uh, I wouldn't say a lot. Obviously, in clinical work, that's all you do. So you're referred in, and as a specialist in, in hospital, I would be referred by GP. So we know that there's very high likelihood the person walking through the door has, is unwell, and the GP has said, please, can you have a look at them as a specialist? In sport, the ones that I tend to see, they're not usually avert because these people go to their own GPs or they'll have a sports doctor in the team who will recognise that uh, and refer them to appropriate psychi psychiatric unit or team or whatever. But if you look, they're going to suffer the same illnesses as any group of young people. Um, so there will be um, generalised anxiety disorders rather than just situational within sport. There will be depressive illness, which is very common in young people across the population. We expect a number of them to have mild depressive illness, often unrecognised or untreated. So these people will come to the door and it may come in the guise of... Uh, I'm finding it really hard to deal with setbacks and failure or I'm finding it really hard to do the commitment to training or, and actually the person isn't well. 
So that's when I would flick with my skills about performance enhancement and understanding and insights into the mind, into assessing whether this mind is actually malfunctioning uh, and needs medication or other treatment in order to get the brain back into working order. And then we move back into the arena of optimizing performance. So yes, I will see problems involving uh, depression um, and its many faces because it's not as easy as you think to detect. Uh, and I'll also see occasionally more overt illnesses and also things like alcohol use, um, potentially drug use. Uh, these are things that may come through the door that I then use my clinical hat to, to deal with. Okay, and do you think there's a stigma in sport in regard to mental health at all? I think there's a stigma still with mental health and it, I think it's a very hard one to get it over and we've tried for the last 20 years um, we did a big thing with the Royal College of um, Practitioners, General Practitioners called Defeat Depression Campaign in the late 90s so it's about 20 years ago now and trying to look at this and destigmatize it and get GPs to recognize what a depressive illness is and then treat it effectively and so on and um, but still people were reluctant to come in um, we did a match study um, with alcohol disorders to try and say what's the best way of dealing with this because they have different etiologies but still the stigma was there which meant that people didn't engage as much as we wanted to uh, and I think the general public still sees the mixture of attitude as opposed to illness and can't quite match the two together and as I explained a few minutes ago I think that depressive illness is not as easy to recognize as you'd first think it's obviously that you're very passionate about medical education. For young students or trainees who are dreaming of working in the sporting environment, as a, as a, whether it's psychiatry or in a clinical capacity, have you, do you have any tips for um, having worked with some of the biggest names in sport? Yeah, kind of just a little correction. I would be an undergraduate dean, so it's not actually the dean of the school. That's a different one, the faculty dean. Um, but I've been an undergraduate dean, so working with young people for a long time. I've been at Sheffield over 20 years. Uh, it's a fantastic privilege. Um, I think if people are entering the sport, I'd say the same as I do to anything. If you're entering medicine, if you're entering any career, is sit down and first research it well. Uh, understand what commitment it's going to take and have you got in place the wherewithal to deal with that um, before you set off. And if you haven't, what are the skills you're going to have to develop um, and realise what are the setbacks, the drawbacks, the, the things you've got to deal with. So, for example, going into elite sport, you have to accept from day one that it's, it's a very steep pyramid uh, and at the bottom are all the hopefuls, at the top are the very few people that make it. If you feel that the journey is worth it, then I'd be saying absolutely commit and enjoy the journey. If you don't make it, at least you'll go away thinking, I, I've done everything I could. Fair enough, it wasn't for me. I couldn't do it. Um, but I think that's true of anything we take. I, I would always say to people, set your goals in place first and make sure they're realistic and then actually commit to it. But enjoy what you're doing. Enjoy the journey. Elite sport has got masses of rewards, but there are some penalties. Um, so, for example, I've now been in elite sport nearly 15 years. You travel extensively, which sounds really exciting, but actually it can be quite destructive to a lot of people, both coaches and athletes, because it disrupts personal relationships. It disrupts your lifestyle in, in general because you're on the movement in hotels and airports constantly and you're being assessed continually by the last performance you've given. Uh, it's no good saying I was good two years ago. So there are unique stresses that may be there for certain people who go into it and you've got to decide whether you can deal with those stresses uh, and the media for example um, who obviously we're watching closely. So once you have the skills to do that, then just commit to the journey. But for young people going in, I'd always say, follow your dream, just be prepared. Okay, that's absolutely lovely advice to hear. Thank, thanks ever so much. Um, Professor Peters, 
as I've just said, thank you ever so much for your time and insight in, um, in this podcast. I'm sure the listeners are can absolutely love listening to it. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. No, no problem. Um, and for any of our listeners who want to know uh, a bit more about the Chimp Model, we definitely recommend that you buy the book or you can listen to it in audiobook format and the links are in the description below. Alternatively, Professor Peters will be speaking at the Basm Spring Conference in London on Friday the 8th of April with a theme is focused on the athletes' hearts and mind. Thanks a lot for listening and get in touch with, B- with the BGSM by the normal channels and hope to have your company again soon. Have a great day. 